You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 130. What's up, Mark? Hey, Jake. What you up to? Oh, man. I'm busy as always. Crazy end of the year stuff? Yeah. Or something clandestine and secret you can't talk about? Uh, I can talk a little bit about it. You know, like as we've mentioned, you know, we're, we're in, in the midst of about to do this uh, equity crowdfunding raise uh, for WellHub, which I'll be able to share more information about here soon. But it is very, very time consuming, but it's all good stuff. Yeah. So listeners out there, somewhere in the very near future, you'll get a, a chance to own a piece of Jake's new startup. We're going to own a piece that we're going to ship in. So whenever you do that, Jake, we'll, we'll let the listeners know so they can they can help you be with your success. And then they can get, be successful as well because they'll have a piece of your company. Exactly. It's the best way to do it. All right. So before we get into anything else, if you like the show, if you listen to the show, the number one thing you can do to help us, and please help us, is leave us a review. When you leave us a review, that is supporting the show. We got two great ones today. Awesome show by the Geo Guy 2. I wonder who the Geo Guy 1 is. Anyway, the Geo Guy 2. <laughs> I love listening to your show. Keeps me up to date on what oil and gas is doing. See how easy that was? That, that was not even a complete sentence because there's no punctuation there. We would be happy with that. We would love that, actually. And then the second one by Martini827. Stumbled upon this podcast. I was driving home from school. I'm a petroleum engineering student, so it's nice to stay on top of current news that pertains to my field of study. These guys make it so easy to learn about the hottest topics in the oil and gas industry. Can't wait until y'all's next one. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you to both y'all. And like I said, want to support the show, leave us a review. All right, let's get the news stories, Jake. All right, so uh, just like you and I were talking about off the mic a little while ago, these first two articles are, are correlated. Both of them are about the, the IEA, which is the International Energy Agency. It's a Paris-based think tank. They released like this 188-page report detailing everything that they've found out or whatever their forecasts are for the energy industry globally. And then those projections go all the way out to like, you know, end of the 2020s. So the first article, it's, it's got a very, very positive sentiment to it. You know, it's titled, the U.S. is on the threshold of the biggest oil and gas boom ever. And they're saying that the U.S. will account for 80% of the increase in global oil supply between now and and 2025 as shale producers find more and more ways to pump oil profitably at lower prices. And they're saying by the late 2020s, the U.S. will become a net exporter of oil for the first time since the 1950s, right? Yeah. Let me clarify that. When they say net exporter, they literally mean that we sell more oil than we buy. So we're already exporting oil, but we will become a net exporter, which is really cool. And then the second article is titled the IEA's shocking revolution about uh, U.S. shale because the IEA downgraded its demand forecast for both this year and next by 50,000 barrels per day, which may not seem like a lot, but it is once you kind of look at that, that number for the year. And yeah, it, it was just, it had more of a, a pessimistic uh, sentiment. And I think it was more, more so short-term. And both of these are interpreting the same 188-page report from the IEA. So... I think you have a great understanding of, of kind of exactly where this is sitting at. So what's what's kind of your interpretation? Yeah, so this is the IEA putting out a bunch of data and also a bunch of hypotheses. And they do this every year. They do a really good job of it, considering how hard it is to actually do this. And we know because we do this ourselves. So the first article, which is from Fortune, and they're they're basically talking about what the future successes will be and what they will look like. Um, will become a net Exporter of oil will become a dominant player in LNG market and natural gas. 
we will become one of the we become the biggest producer out there. The Middle East is still play a role, but the the geopolitics are changing. The Middle East is, is going to shift their market from U.S. to more of Asia Pacific, which is kind of weird, but that's where that's going. And then we're going to provide natural gas to almost the entire planet, which is good for us. And so it's kind of an upbeat article talking about the future based upon what the IEA sees. sees. Now, the second article is about the slowing in growth for demand globally. I got to be real careful here because people get this confused all the time. The growth for oil and gas is continuing. Every year, the world needs more oil and gas than it did the year before. And that is not going to stop anytime, right? What's happening is that the percentage of growth is slowing down. This is the same thing we saw back in whatever it was, 2012, or I think 2013, when we predicted the crash, is that we saw that the, the demand in China the percentage of growth was slowing down. So the demand was still there and the demand was still growing in China, but the percentage of that growth had slowed down a lot. And so we literally got an Excel spreadsheet and plotted that out along with the supply. And we saw where those two lines intersected and we missed it by a couple months, but we called, you know, the downturn. Everybody told me I was crazy. So this is looking at the slowdown in percentage of growth globally. And so this is kind of more of a pessimistic outlook. You know, they don't say this, but what they're they're leading into is the fact that there may be another slight glut on the market, another low price, you know, environment where the the operators are struggling, the service companies that work with those operators are struggling. I don't see that happening. I really don't. And and they're going way out to the 2025 on this. But I, I think that combination of a bunch of things, changing geopolitics, the changing role technology has to play, the fact that we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world, so prices aren't going to uh, go through the roof unless there's a war in the Middle East. And even that, it'll be a short-term spike in prices. I think that we still have our ups and downs because this is one of the true few global commodities out there. But I think the big swings have been moderated and will continue to be moderated. And I don't see another glut on the market. Not, I mean, it will happen again, but I don't think it'll happen again until 2030, 2035, something like that. And when it does happen, I think it's going to be a modest one, not like the one we just lived through. So same data, same hypothesis, two different, you know, all price looking at a little bit more pessimistically than fortunes looking at it. Cool. So up next, this next uh, article, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard a lot about this. It's titled Kingdom of Fear, Saudi Arabia on Lockdown. I'm sure a lot of people have heard that there was a major... I don't know how to put it. It was they're they're calling it the purge, and it reminds me a lot of like Game of Thrones. Mark, you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah. Okay. So it reminds me a lot of Game of Thrones because you've got what's his name, the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, I think. I think it's his name. Yes. Yep. So he was put in charge of a task force, an anti-corruption task force, and pretty much overnight, I think it was like at two or three o'clock in the morning. They rounded up tons of government officials and executives from Saudi Aramco and members of the royal family. Some of the richest people in the entire world were rounded up and arrested, and they've been held up in a hotel. I don't remember the name of the hotel, but there in Saudi Arabia. Right now, the list has grown. Initially, it was like 13 or 14 people. Uh, now, the list has grown to more than 60 as of today. And so between the 60 of them, assets that have been seized of those arrested are worth more than $800 billion. So that kind of gives you an idea. It's pretty much a overwhelming majority of the Saudi elite have all been arrested and are currently being detained. 
And so obviously, you know, a lot of these have ties to Saudi Aramco, and there's a lot of questions about the implications that this could have uh, around their IPO because Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is also, I mean, he's the one who's been pushing for this IPO and he's the one who's the head of the anti-corruption agency. Uh, he's the heir to the throne. And he's also the, the largest champion for the Vision 2030 reform program that Saudi Arabia has been pushing so heavily. So what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts, Mark? So this is what I think. Once again, it's not that uh, the crown prince calls me for my strategy, although he should. I think he's doing the right thing. He knows he needs to go public with Saudi Ramco. He knows the only way he can go public is to clean up the corruption. Corruption in the Middle East is part of the business culture there. It always has been. And I think he's trying to move the needle here. If you think about what he's doing, Jake, how dangerous is it for him and his family? He's cracking down on the corruption, but the corruptions are some of the biggest political and economic powerhouses in his country, right? So he's putting his own safety and his family's safety at risk, trying to do the right thing. And that's what I think he's doing. There's some people outside of Saudi Arabia that's saying that this is a political crew and he's using this as a way to seem in his political position, which would just be wrong, right? I don't think that what's going on. I've had my eye on this guy for a long time, and I think he sees the future, and the future is either almost zero political power globally for the old ways of doing business with uh, Saudi Arabia or the new Saudi Arabia that has multiple revenue streams that are not tied to exporting crude and that does business in a global market in a way, in a way the rest of the world like Europe and the U.S. do business. And I, I think that's what this is. But if they're going public, they need to clean up the corruption. And, you know, it's a different culture over there. It's 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 not like it is here in Europe. And unless you've done business over there, you just don't get it. But this is the probably what he had to do to, to, to actually get this corruption under control so they could go public. Yeah. I mean, especially if all their books are going to have to be completely transparent, regardless of which exchange they're going to be listed on. You know, if they wanted to be successful, if there is really true corruption, then this is definitely the best thing to happen. You know, like you said, there's a lot of speculation that, you know, perhaps this is just a consolidation of power and securing his position and making sure that there's no opposition to, you know, him being the, the rightful heir to the throne. You know, so hopefully, hopefully this was uh, all done the right way. And, you know, if, if that really is the case, imagine if we had a purge here in the U.S. Imagine if President Trump put together an anti-corruption agency and, and all of a sudden arrested all of the politicians who had any... <laughs> corruption charges against them or any allegations that would be absolutely insane yeah not to go down that route but if any political administration would actually do it our current would we would be the one yeah, that would that actually is. do something like that yeah let's not go down that rabbit hole but i'm just saying like imagine being in saudi arabia and this happens you know it's, it's kind of crazy well it's that part of the world is still very much ruled by tribal dictatorships almost is a way to is a way to talk about it and so you have all this chaos and we have an expert that we need to bring on our show. I just haven't gotten around to getting everything coordinated with him. He's a great guy. He's a listener to the show. I think he's in up, uh, he's on the upper East coast. And so we're going to get him to help us talk about the politics here. Cause it's very complicated. And if you, if you don't understand what's going on and I'm not claiming that I have a complete understanding at all, I, that a lot of this stuff still, I don't understand what's going on, but you know, in this case, you still have the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How much does that play into this? And then, you know, which ones of the Royal family, are being offered asylum in other countries, which then, you know, then their, their political power has been diminished, but it's still there. Uh, you know, it's, it, this is, this could easily be a big mess that destabilizes uh, that part of the world even more, but I don't think so. I think this is actually the right thing to do. Cool. Yeah. I'm definitely going to keep my eyes on this. I think it's, it's very, very interesting. I mean, it's something that you don't necessarily see uh, very often. It, it does 
obviously play into the big picture into uh, Saudi Arabia's future. So let's keep an eye on that. Speaking of Saudi Arabia, next article is also about the, I think, I don't know if it's about the IPO. No, it's just about Saudi Aramco. Aramco plans to spend $300 billion over the next 10 years in upstream oil and gas. I think it was at Atapak Energy Conference in Abu Dhabi, which I think- Which we're we're, we're, we're we're going going to next next year. Yeah, next year. Yeah, Yeah, 2018. Awesome. So he said that the CEO said that this is mainly upstream onshore, offshore joint ventures in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. And so, yeah, they're looking to invest very, very heavily in upstream. So, yep. So if you're an oil field service company and you don't have a good relationship with Aramco, you may want to, you may want to go develop that relationship. Cause imagine if you got just 2% of that $300 billion pie. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. The article wasn't very long. We don't really have a whole lot of talking points on this one, but it does kind of give us uh, some kind of clear indication as to Saudi Aramco's plans for the future. All right. Up next, next, India's reform aims to attract oil and gas investments. Uh, There's been tons of reform in India recently, and it's all uh, geared towards aiming to attract investors. Apparently, they've attracted over $40 billion, or they're looking to attract over $40 billion in the next five years in oil and gas exploration and production. Let's pause right there. We just talked about the early article where one company is going to invest $300 billion, and now we're looking at an entire country mm-hmm. wants to hopefully raise $40 billion. Big difference in scope. Huge, huge. And that's over four to five years, too. Yeah. So I guess they've already recently taken an investment of 25 billion dollars or at least somebody is committed to it through some of their new I guess it's it's called a uh, PSC production sharing contract which is part of the new reforms uh, that the Indian federal government has released yeah it's funny you know our industry loves acronyms so they introduced <laughs> something called the hydrocarbon exploration and licensing policy help <laughs> help the hydrocarbon exploration licensing policy gives operators the freedom to market produced oil and gas domestically through a very transparent bidding process. And it gets rid of all the conflicts that their old process had, which was called new exploration and licensing policy or NELP. So HELP is the new one. NELP is the old one. HELP is basically allowing the free market to help help. (laughs) That's funny. It's basically allowing the free market so that Operators can actually make money and understand their investment, what their expected rate of returns is based on what the, unlike the old one, NELP, when operators didn't really have complete control, they didn't know what was going to happen. So you're seeing this, this started in Mexico, which I still can't believe the president pulled off. And you're seeing this start to happen in India. Uh, It's going to happen around the rest of the world. If you want the major operators to come into your country and do a joint venture with your company, it has to be transparent so they know the risk and they know the possible reward and they can make a sound business decision. The old days of the nationalized oil companies basically holding a noose around the majors out there, it just doesn't work anymore because unfortunately, the majors are the ones with all the expertise and cutting edge technologies, the the, the European and US majors, the Exxons and the Totals and the Shells and the PPs. And if you're, you know, Petrovesa, you just don't have that expertise and you can't get your own oil out of the ground. And so working with the majors in a fair, transparent policy is where everybody's going to have to go. And this is just a perfect example of India doing the right thing for its people in the country because that money's going to go right back into the country. It's going to build schools, it's going to build roads, it's going to build hospitals, you know, and help pull that country out of their current agricultural based society into a modern based society. So this is this is good stuff. I think the government's doing the right thing here. Um, you're going to see the majors come in and do some investment and do some. And when, when you know, I say investment, you know, when somebody like ExxonMobil comes into your country, they don't just buy a block of land to start drilling. 
they build roads, they build schools, they build hospitals, they bring expertise and they help educate the people there because they know that their future workers are in that country mm-hmm. and it's to everybody's best interest to do that sort of thing. So did you know this, Jake? You know what uh, company spends more money fighting malaria than anybody else in the world? No. And than any other government. It's ExxonMobil. Really? Nobody knows that. Yeah, nobody knows that. That's ExxonMobil trying to do good for the planet and for the people out there, not trying to put money in Exxon's pocket. That's actually costing Exxon money and they don't hawk their own horn. Anyway, so you know this is all good for the country, and, and, and India is going someplace. I am firmly convinced. Everybody says I'm crazy that India is going to pass up China in our lifetime, both in population and GDP. So let's see what happens. Yeah, all good stuff for India. Next, the world's biggest private equity firm is looking to invest one billion dollars in oil outside the U.S. So the group that we're talking about is called the Carlyle Group. And they're raising one billion dollars to create a new fund for investing in oil and gas outside the U.S. The last fund that they raised was in 2013. And they've almost spent all of the $2.5 billion funds that they raised. And that was their last uh, energy investment fund. And so the goal of this is its primary focus is on oil and gas exploration production, uh, midstream, downstream, refining work, pretty much everything, oil field services. So there's definitely a lot of money being pumped in. Yeah. So let me tell you one of the things I find very, very, very interesting is one of the the fund's investments is very high profile is a company called Neptune. And basically, they want to buy the North Sea gas assets of France's, one of France's developments over there mm-hmm. in, in the North Sea. So if you remember right, France is the one of the first countries that said they could go totally toward renewables, right? They could get rid of using hydrocarbons. It's a federal mandate over there. Well, if you're a smart person and you know that that's physically impossible and that natural gas is the cleanest way to generate electricity – and that Germany tried to do this, and they end up having to build more coal fire power plants. So they actually made air pollution work, trying to go to a total renewable environment. And you see the French government say, we're going that, that route too. Doesn't it just make sense to go buy the biggest gas field that's next to France and knowing they're going to fail so you can sell them gas? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, am I the only one that says this? That's a really good plan. And the sense. field was devalued because France said they're not going to be using hydrocarbons anymore. So they got it for pennies on the dollar. I, you know, this is a very upfront and to my mind, transparent way to make money, you know, and and I think that's exactly where it's going to go. France needs electricity. The best environmental way to produce electricity actually really is nuclear, but nobody will go there. And the next best way is is natural gas. Here's a company coming out buying all the gas for pennies on the dollar that is geographically closest to France, which then decreases the transportation costs. And so they're going to sit and wait. They wait for the blackouts to start happening in Paris. They're done. (laughs) That's pretty smart. Let's keep our eye on and see how it plays out. I think you might be right. So up next, uh, GE, believe it or not, is targeting a Baker Hughes exit already. So they, I don't know if you, I'm sure you know this, Mark, but I don't know if everybody else knows this. So GE has a new CEO uh, who was appointed in June. And I guess he had a successful turnaround at the company's health unit. And so I guess they had a, I think it was uh, some kind of conference or convention or something that he was speaking at this week where he was kind of laying out his strategy to kind of stem the losses by making the company less complex and more focused on, on their, their core businesses in 2018. And so, you know, they own 67% of Baker Hughes, which is now set up as his own, GE Baker Hughes is his own company, its own public company, but they're already looking at options to, you know, exit out of that investment, even though that acquisition closed only four months ago. And so there's a lot of speculation that maybe they might be getting, I, I ran across at least six or seven articles today. Maybe they might be exiting oil and gas altogether. We don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any insider information? I actually do have 
I shouldn't say I have insider information. I know that the new Baker Hughes GE very, 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 very well. <laughs> a lot of conversation with them almost on a weekly basis. I think this is a rumor. And I think this is a rumor that was done intentionally. I think what's happening is there's parts of the old Baker Hughes, which just does not fit into the new GE Baker Hughes very well. And I think they're going to exit parts of that business. It's basically lower margin business that the other service companies have a chokehold on. So why would you even go there? The thing that I see Baker Hughes GE doing that uh, for some reason nobody else sees is they have this middle layer, the Predix platform, which actually rides on at least partially on Microsoft's Azure platform, which makes some interesting bedfellows there. And so that Predix platform is what we need for the digital oil field, right? It, it's that middle layer. GE bought Baker Hughes because Baker Hughes has all the sensors and parts and pumps and everything for the frontline layer to collect that data. It's then fed in predicts where you do predictive analytics and machine learning. And then the output helps operators make more effective and efficient business decision quicker. The thing I think GE's doing is they, they're going to own that data and they're going to mine that data. Um, sort of like Jake, when you, know, you and I are both car people, although you're a BMW guy, I'm a Mercedes guy. Um, <laughs> You know, when I'm looking online at that Mercedes AMG 63S, and then two days later, open Facebook, guess what happens? It serves me an ad for that exact car. How does that happen? Because Facebook is buying that analytics on that data of what Mark did serve, and then Facebook monetizes that by serving me an ad. If I click through it, the Mercedes dealership gives Facebook a couple cents, which doesn't sound like much. We do that 500,000 times a day, and it starts adding up. So... That's what Baker Hughes G is doing. They're going to own that data and they're going to mine that data. And, you know, everybody thinks they're going to be making their money from Shell paying to have access to the analytics around their sensor data out in the field out in West Texas. And that's not what I think they're doing. So I think they need to hold on to Baker Hughes because Baker Hughes is that frontline pumps parts through tubing services that are the source of the data that they're going to mine. So I don't, I think this is a rumor and I think, I mean, I know I'm confident they're going to, they're going to get rid of some of Baker Hughes business units that aren't core to them, but they're going to keep the rest of it. We'll see how it plays out. I'm kind of, I, yeah, we'll I feel like they're going to hold on to it. I feel like it, it definitely is a rumor, but I guess we'll see. I feel like they've invested too much into this, but who knows? Let's keep around that. So uh, kind of back to the IEA uh, report, a big part of that report also, uh, it, as this article was talking about from EPMAG, the energy sector is on the cusp of a new digital era. So as, as I mentioned in that 188 page report, a big part of that was about the digitalization and technology in oil and gas, specifically in upstream and how that is really going to affect efficiency for companies moving forward. And so they talk about a whole bunch of things and which stuff that we've always talked about, but is just kind of further validation that the industry is kind of going in that direction. I'll just kind of read a few excerpts from there. So they start talking about artificial intelligence and they're saying that, you know, AI could be used to analyze well performance, troubleshoot underperforming fields, uh, suggest corrective actions, and even deploy robots to carry out tasks. It could also enhance reservoir modeling and thus aid operations by rapidly detecting and correcting suboptimal production behavior, which is all 100% true. Some of the other things that they've said was, you know, energy companies that we're working with closely are looking to increase their investment in digital technologies. Our numbers show that investment in digital infrastructure has increased by 20% each year over the past couple of years. So, and I've seen this too, just, you know, working with different operators, people are spending a lot more and they're investing a lot more of their time and energy and money into this space and looking for new ways to leverage technology and kind of bring it up to par with the technologies that we have in Silicon Valley and bring that to the digital oil field to where you can actually use 
you know, there definitely is no shortage of data whatsoever, but it's actually, you know, extracting the insights from that data and finding new ways to drive efficiencies through the entire life cycle of a well, you know, through exploration, through production and, and so on. So, you know, and that, that involves uh, sometimes real-time sensors, sometimes maybe it's sensors to optimize drilling. Uh, you were already seeing some AI f- for actual drilling, being able to like kind of like steer drill bits to be a little bit more accurate. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff around seismic data, just because the the data sets for seismic are so large. I think there's going to be new ways that you're going to find possible correlations or trends within data to help companies be a little bit more accurate in you know making sure that they actually hit oil. You know, there's there's so there's so many different applications, and I think this was really really. I mean, it was it was really cool for me to see. Obviously, being in this field, you know, it's it's more further confirmation that the industry is headed in the direction that I would like to see it go. Yeah, this is a great article that Jake found in Heart Energy's ENP magazine. And if you read it, and if you're a listener to the show, you would swear that the authors of this article has been listening to Jake and I for the last year. And <laughs> <laughs> just wrote an article based on what we've been talking about. And and I know that's not true, or if it is true, I know we'll never find out. A couple of things here that I think is, is really noteworthy is the disruption in jobs that's created by the adoption of new technology. And I don't mean disruption like people losing jobs or jobs disappearing, which will happen, but all of the new jobs that will be created, new new types of jobs that don't exist right now, and where we could get that talent from to do all this sort of stuff. You know, you and I joke all the time that BP can't hire enough drone pilots, but you know, I was talking, I had lunch today with a very senior person uh, in the technology field in oil and gas, and he was talking about how there's not enough sensor technicians that go install these sensors in the field. The sensors exist. The companies see the the need for them, but there's not enough qualified technicians to go install these existing sensors. And so they're pulling people from agriculture who install these sensors in these big commercialized farms to come do an oil field. How cool is it that some guy that used to have to drive out in Iowa and install sensors in a water pump and, and you know, a cornfield in Iowa is now doing work out at Chevron. I mean, that is, I just think that's freaking awesome. And so, but you're also bringing some challenges, things like uh, cybersecurity, you know, barriers to, to, to enhance this digitalization of oil, which we need. So the whole point of all this, and this is the, the discussion that Jake and I've had before and, and I've had with other people, is there's so much opportunity right now in this exact thing because nobody knows where it's going. Nobody knows what it is. It's going to create demands that we don't know about today. And it's going to create shortage of things like talent. So, you know, if you're a company out there and you're having interest in oil and gas, pay attention to all this new adaptation, new technology, because it's just a ton, a ton of new opportunity for, for people and for companies. So it's all good stuff. At the, uh, the, you know, I talked about the, the Denver Energy Tech Showcase that I went to out in uh, Denver a few weeks ago, and that was just overwhelming, the response that we had at that event. You know, there was, I think there was like 45 different startups. We all had booths set up at this brewery. There were, uh, you had Silicon Valley Bank there. You had all these venture capitalists. You had representatives from all of these different EMPs out in Denver. There was over 400, I think maybe even closer to 500 people in attendance at this specific event. And this is just there in Denver. So it goes to show that there's a lot of, a lot of hype around, you know, all of this, you know, the digitalization of oil and gas, and there's a lot of cool startups that are popping up and, you know, people are starting to dump money into it, you know, from the venture capitalists to the angel investors, you know, people are starting to realize that this is kind of a, you know, a goldmine for efficiency, you know, moving forward and the industry really doesn't have a choice, you know, so it's, it's really just a matter of time. Yeah, it's going to happen. Whether, whether so, you're, you're basically, if you're a company in oil and gas, you're you're one of three people, right? You're the guy in the parade. You're the guy watch, watching the parade, or you're the guy going what parade? And if you're the guy going what parade, you're gonna disappear. 
If you're just watching the parade, that's okay. The guys that are in a parade will get there first. You'll get there second. But if you don't pay attention to this now, if you're not paying attention now, you're going to disappear in the future. And vice versa, companies that are paying attention to this, companies that are in the parade are going to pull so far ahead of, of a lot of other companies that have been doing this for 50 or 100 years. So once again, just a bunch of opportunity of, because this change is coming. And it's, I think it's a great thing. And this, this last article is just kind of piggybacking on, on the previous one. This is also from EP Mag. And this one is, it's really quoting the CEO of Marathon Oil Corporation. I mean, he was speaking at an event recently. The title of the article is Oilfield uh, Talk of Big Data Needs More Than Just Talk. And so I'll just kind of give a brief summary. We've already talked about most of this, but, you know, U.S. independents are talking more and more about deploying big data, data analytics, and Internet of Things. And according to the CEO, he says, frankly, a lot of this is just a lot of talk. And I would say that that's a half true. And I would say the other half is, you know, that people are actually taking action. But I think uh, a lot of people are really just overwhelmed by and not necessarily understanding what they need moving forward. But he says, you know, we're at a bit of a crossroads right now with a traditional incremental approach to innovation we've been using is simply not enough. The challenge isn't in you know, collecting data, we definitely do not suffer from a lack of data, but it's the question is how can we take all the data we've accumulated and learn from it, not just react to it, but be able to do something differently with it in the future. And so he goes to talk about how Marathon is hiring individuals. And this is something that, you know, people ask us all the time, you know, what are some of the skills or traits that we need uh, to really succeed in, in this new workforce? And so he says that, you know, Marathon is hiring individuals who can marry data and mathematics with geoscience and reservoir engineering. People who can integrate data and develop models that see trends or anomalies that simply would not have been seen with traditional interpretation methods. That's the future of our industry. And so more and more good stuff there. I think that was really, really exciting, especially seeing that come from the sea level. Yeah, I will agree with him. There's a lot of it's 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 become too cliche, too many people throwing around the same words that you and I rattle off, you know, big data analytics, machine learning, cognitive, internet of things. And so it there is a lot of fluff out there. But one of the things I see a lot of, Jake is I see companies, and I mean some big companies, that talk about their artificial intelligence. And when you dig behind the scenes, it's not artificial intelligence. It's just data analytics with a pretty front end, right? And so you have that going on. Same way with data scientists. Because there's such high demand, anybody that's taken an online certification is saying he's a data scientist, and they're not. Yeah. So that's going on, but that goes on anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's going on for the oil and gas industry since it started. But some of the practical stuff that Marathon's doing in their Delaware Basin, they're using 100% recycled water, 100% recycled water. So they're using technology to turn frack water, turn produced water into new usable water for their wells. So they're not tapping into water in the environment. They're using pipelines everywhere. Once again, using technology instead of hauling water by truck, uh, which is better for the environment. It's better for everybody. So you're seeing this happen and it's, it's going to happen in companies like Marathon that are doing it well are going to pull ahead of the, their competitors that aren't. And in the long run, they're just going to come out ahead. Yep. All good stuff. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the future. And, and of course, I'll, I'll talk more about what we're doing at Well Hair here soon. So people who want to participate can. So anyways, that and go ahead. Audience, stay tuned because, you know, Jake and I talk about technology a lot. There's a reason we do because it's so important which we may have something in the future that kind of touches that. So stay tuned. we got some new shows coming out. And that about wraps up the stories for the week. So let's move on to the Red Wing offshore bag winner for the week. Who do we got? 
It is a Peter Mahoney. He's uh, with EP Energy. He's a completions engineer. Congratulations, Peter, on winning this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. All your peers will be super jealous because we hear that over and over again. If you'd like to win your own awesome offshore bag to make your peers jealous, just like Peter did, it's really easy. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information and we draw one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. That's the lawyer stuff I have to say every now and then. And speaking of lawyer stuff, if you like our podcast and you notice that the production qualities went up, such as me and Jake now are at the same volume when sometimes we weren't in the past, that's all hats off to Emin at David Studio. Emin's our new team editor. He's our professional audio editor, does fantastic work, and he's offered a discount for our listeners. So if you have a podcast or you're thinking about doing a podcast, reach out to Emin. Uh, Jacob put his email in the show notes, and he's given a discount to anybody that puts OGGN in the beginning of the email. A lot of great stuff to say about him. He does a really, really great job. It's not expensive at all. Very quick turnaround and just a good guy. So welcome to our team, Emin. And if you need to reach out to David Studio and get your podcast edited, let Emin know and he'll do a great job for you. Weekly rig count. What are we looking at, Jake? 1,014 rigs. Okay, so we went up a little bit. Yeah, not much, but it's still going up. Yeah, well, at least we went up. Events on deck. We didn't put any in here because I didn't get a chance to catch up. But if you want to learn about all the oil and gas events that are going on in one place without you having to do anything, sign up for my monthly newsletter. Years ago, I had a problem because I couldn't go one place and see all the oil and gas events. It was a mess, all different websites and everything. So I, my people now go gather all that stuff. They comb the interwebs, put it in a newsletter, and we stick it in your inbox once a month, no spam, free of charge. And often there's stuff in there you can't get anywhere else. So private events that aren't public, uh, free passes to some of the major oil and gas conferences. So Jacob put a link in the show notes. And then if you listen to the show, you're our community. If you want to help your community and your peers, share the show. The more you share the show, the more you grow our community and the more reach and leverage you have and the more people you have to interact with. So do us a favor, social media, all company, email, whatever, share the show with your friends and family. We'd be very happy if you did that for us. And then we got a, a big shout out to our on the road sponsors, Total Land, world's most advanced field land management system, and Lee Heck Harrison, global experts in talent management. Uh, if you need help with either one of those, check out their links. Uh, Jacob put them in the show notes. And for 2018, we're doing things differently. So we're not gonna have travel sponsors. We're gonna have event sponsors. We have 39, 40 something events for 2018 we're going to. If you want to get your company at a very low cost in front of our global audience, we're up to 370,000 people in 172 different countries that listen to us. Reach out to Jake and I. We'll be happy to share the details. And speaking of reaching out to Jake and I, if you want Jake and I to come speak at your company event, your school, your gym, sales and marketing, whatever, uh, reach out to us and we will tell you how to make that happen. Uh, first Friday Q&A, first Friday in December, we'll answer your questions. If you want to ask a question, just go to the website, click on ask a question. And if we use your question on the air, you'll get a big shout out. And then if you go to the website, might as well give us your email address. We don't spam you, but that's where you can find out about stuff first, like the new shows we have coming out. If you want to be the person that finds out about it second, go to All and Gas Global Network, our LinkedIn group and sign up there. That's where we'll make the announcement second. Uh, and I guess that's about it. Anything else, Jake? I think we're all good here, man. All right. So remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.